This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. There's no more pleasurable experience on the internet for me than getting lost in a Wikipedia rabbit hole. Clicking on links, learning new things, it's just the greatest way to spend the night. The other day, my son, uh, Ari, was asking me about porcupines. And we got on there and we learned that the name porcupine comes from the Latin porcus and spina for quill. So it's basically a quill pig. And we also learned about how humans use porcupines. Uh, the Lakota uh, Native American tribe would harvest the quills for clothing and decoration. Um, so we clicked on Lakota, and then we learned that the Lakota women would harvest the quills for quill work by throwing a blanket over the porcupine and retrieving the quills that left stuck in the blanket. We learned about how they domesticated horses. And from the Lakota article, we started to learn about the domestication of the horse and about how humans and horses have interacted. And you can just go on and on. It's just this gloriously rich and complex and never-ending resource. And that was, I think, a really exciting thing about encyclopedias in general. Encyclopedias have existed since antiquity. One of the earliest surviving encyclopedic works dates back to the first century CE. The term defines a reference text that includes summaries of different topics from either across different branches of knowledge or within one branch. One of the earliest modern encyclopedias was printed in France in the 18th century. Its authors aim to compile all the knowledge in the world. It stood and still stands as uh, not just an ideal, but an actual embodied ideal of knowledge. It stands as an openness so that, in this case, anyone who could read can have it accessed. I'm Jim Mengel. I teach literature at Harvard. I'm in the Department of English and the Department of Comparative Literature and occasionally do some things in the study of religion as well, where I'm a member and uh, in American studies. Unlike many encyclopedias that came before it, this text was written in French, which was the common language of the day, instead of Latin, which was the language of the elite. This is not a, a project, as I take it, which is out there to reinforce class. It's not a project which is out there to reinforce inherited wealth as such. It's a project which is about intellectual curiosity and about knowledge and about getting it into the hands of more people. So that, I think, in and of itself is a project that is, 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 got all kinds of political implications. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Engel to talk about the encyclopedia. The story of the French encyclopedia starts in England. In 1728, an Englishman named Ephraim Chambers published a two-volume encyclopedia, one of the first such reference texts published in English. The book became quite popular and was reprinted several times in the following decades and translated into Italian. 
In the 1740s, two scholars translated Chambers' encyclopedia into French and prepared it for publication. They released a prospectus, which received a lot of attention and support, and they prepared to publish their completed text. But personal problems got in their way. Their collaboration fell apart. One of them got into a physical fight with the publisher and took him to court, and they eventually both left the project. The project, however, continued, and eventually two new editors were hired to complete it, Denis Diderot and Jean-Laurent d'Alembert. Tell us about the context in which this work arrived. What were the authors trying to accomplish? Well, it's a huge and ambitious project. They are really trying to pull together knowledge, not just knowledge in France, but knowledge from the entire world. They're trying to pull it together. They're trying to have people write about it authoritatively. They're trying to disseminate that in a general way so that it is written in an idiom which is um, intelligible to someone who's literate. Now, that's an important consideration because not everybody at that time is literate. And it's an attempt to be truly comprehensive. Uh, that's extraordinary. And part of, I think, their idea is that this kind of knowledge, freely available, will make it possible for individuals to make their own judgments and to think for themselves and not to be beholden to authority. There were three main authorities in France at the time, the government, the academy, and the church. There was no free press in 18th century France. Publishers had to apply for permission from the government to publish new texts, including the encyclopedia. So the government had its eyes on everything that was openly published. Not just what is published, but what people write, even in letters. Uh, so you have uh, the, uh, the, the snooping, the looking over the shoulder, the 18th century equivalent of a kind of eavesdropping on people. And uh, this is something that is uh, counter to the spirit of the encyclopedia. And the encyclopedia is counter to it, and it pushes back against it. I think in quite a remarkable way. The encyclopedia also pushed back against the intellectual norms of the time. The French had this long tradition before the encyclopedia of various academies. The academy that wrote the Dictionnaire Francaise, the academy that would uh, undertake uh, the investigation of ancient inscriptions and all kinds of academic um, uh, organizations, but this project of the encyclopedia is a kind of supra or meta project to try to collect all of that into one larger thing. The encyclopedia's editors aimed to break down the barriers between different academic studies and create a single work that would provide knowledge across the disciplines. They also disliked the practice of looking to the past for answers. Scholars were constantly looking to ancient philosophers such as Aristotle, rather than to the intellectuals of the day. This could cause problems. At times, when you fall into the habit of thinking that many things that are old are good, you can fall into the habit of thinking that anything that's old is good and that you ought to turn to it first. This practice could trap scholars in the past rather than letting them move forward. So there's this long battle in French intellectual history between the so-called ancients and moderns. And in a way, the encyclopedia is a statement of, of the moderns, a crowning statement of the moderns. But it's saying, you know, you don't always want automatically to turn to ancient authorities and assume that they were right. The third authority was the Catholic Church. Catholicism was the only religion officially allowed by the French government. And the church had immense political as well as cultural power. 
These three authorities, the state, the academy, and the church, kept knowledge locked up and tightly controlled. The encyclopedia's creators believed they held the key. This was the Age of Enlightenment, a period characterized by a focus on knowledge, reason, and the separation of church and state. I think they thought of this as uh, a new text or set of texts that would provide a foundation for a new kind of society. And in that sense, it's a secular society. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, And that that society would be one that would be capable of expanding and changing itself. It would be self-critical. It wouldn't be based upon given authority. Uh, And it wouldn't be uh, beholding to a set of individuals that had been uh, determined by some other group, a set of neither set of clerics nor a set of government functionaries nor a set of nobles, uh, and that therefore it represented, I suppose one could say, a form of free press. And so to that extent, there's certainly a kind of democratizing effect or what, what you might call a, an effect of openness, a widening of the availability to a much larger group of people. And that's clearly an ideal here, that knowledge is to be shared, not hidden away, not repressed. It's to be possessed. Um, And it's not just knowledge about, you know, difficult intellectual abstract things. It's knowledge also about very practical things, about careers and about uh, things that one might... uh, worry about uh, in practical matters. And so in that sense, the encyclopedia really is a a very broad educational instrument. It's intended to be something that lots of people will want to turn to and can turn to. This mission was written into the project's name. Encyclopedia is a word that basically translated means general knowledge from the Greek or a chain or a, a complete conspectus of knowledge. And so it's an attempt to educate a citizenry. So Diderot and D'Alembert, who are the major promulgators of it, uh, they are producing something which they know is intended not just to inform but to change things. It's a fulfillment of a certain philosophical dream. This was the dream of the Enlightenment, to build a society on reason and knowledge rather than faith and dogma. In 1784, the Prussian-German philosopher Immanuel Kant wrote a short essay called Answering the Question, What is Enlightenment? Kant says, you have to dare to know things on your own. You have to exit your own intellectual minority, meaning speaking of minority as age, and uh, cast off the idea that you're simply going to accept what you are told to accept. And Kant makes a little distinction and says, you know, if you're carrying out a a civic duty as an officer, you you have to follow the line. That's what you need to do. But as a scholar, and by scholar, I think he means just someone who's literate and cares about ideas. He doesn't necessarily mean someone who's appointed in a university. Kant says the scholar has a right to Uh, get their hands on whatever they can and read and form their own opinions and then try to disseminate those opinions and that they should be able to do so with uh, a certain freedom. Through the encyclopedia, Diderot and D'Alembert strive to dismantle the power of authority 
and give the power instead to the individual. It wasn't knowledge for knowledge's sake. And that's why they took up the arts and the sciences and the careers as well. Because only by being able to see those under some kind of single focus could you then turn to these larger issues. So let me just expand on that a little. We think today of various problems that our society faces, and they're analogous perhaps to problems that were faced in the time of Diderot and d'Alembert. An example would be inequality. What do you do about inequality in society? Is it a problem? If so, what kind of problem is it? How do you define it? What are you going to do about it? Race relations, that would be another uh, issue that societies have struggled with for a long, long time. Environmental questions, that would be another one. Well, when you start to think about them, you say, why have these become so troubled and intractable? Well, they can't be solved by a single discipline. You are just not going to be able to attack them. If you think about race relations, are you going to have to know something about history? Yes. Are you going to have to know something about economics? Well, that's probably a good idea too. How about the arts and literature? That would help. Philosophy also. Oh, and how about biology? And Yes. In other words, uh, I think they realized that every subject, as it were, and every problem has behind it a multiplicity of knowledges that are necessary to be drawn upon. This is the same philosophy that's behind liberal arts education, or as Engel says, liberal arts and sciences. That's, I think, part of the ideal of what's behind the encyclopedia, that when you get someone who has that kind of curiosity, they will be capable of finding what they need to know in order to address these significant issues that cannot be characterized by one single form of knowledge or one single kind of career, that you're going to have to work together in a more social, integrated way in order for the society to face up to these issues. I mean, that's an incredible vision. In order to solve a complex problem, especially a social problem, you need to understand a lot of ideas from a lot of different fields of study. But you don't just need the information from each field. You need the ideas behind it. Each science, and when they say science, that, that translates means each systematic form of knowledge. That's what it really means. It doesn't quite mean modern science. Each systematic form of knowledge and each art has its metaphysics. Now, what they mean by that is it has its theory. To critique a novel, you have to understand some literary theory. To build a house, you have to understand some theories of physics and engineering. And that attitude of having not just a view of an art or a science, but a view of the theoretical underpinnings behind it is this added dimension, which is um, not exclusively modern, but it has characterized modern thought ever since in a way that is evident. But it means that there's a, a way of thinking about how an art or science sets out its own rules, how it progresses. Uh, how it changes and the like. That's, that's quite an amazing insight. Uh, not perhaps particularly original uh, with the encyclopedia, but a sense in it that it's not just true of certain subjects, it's true of every subject, it's true of every art and science, every one of them. As Diderot and D'Alembert gathered all the articles that they would include, they had to decide how to organize it. They had several options, such as organizing it by subject, all the scientific topics together in one place, all the art somewhere else. 
but instead they chose to organize it alphabetically. In doing this, I think they thought that the idea of having these separate entries nevertheless would and should cause there to be connections between them. So this was not just the kind of thing where you would run to, you know, find out something about music, period, or something about architecture, um, but where you would be able to get a kind of education that connected things in the arts and the sciences. I think, if I recall, they didn't finish, or at least they didn't... They didn't finish yeah, what they had <laughs> set out platonically in an ideal way to do. No, they, yes, that's right. Diderot knew that writing an encyclopedia would be a slow process. He wrote as much in the encyclopedia itself. With a single word, a monarch can make a palace arise from the grass. But a society of men of letters is not like a herd of manual labors. An encyclopedia cannot be ordered up. It is a labor that must be doggedly pursued rather than launched energetically. It's massive. It's many volumes. And it has, uh, has some incredible illustrations and plates in it. So it's interesting to look at as well as to read. And I think it's a, it's a true intellectual um, centerpiece of a lot of effort, uh, not only in the Enlightenment, but in the post-Renaissance world. What do we know about their, their visual works? How did they decide which entries got diagrams and illustrations, and, and who were making all these illustrations? What, what do we know about that part of the project? I don't know how they decided that exactly. And I have seen plates from 1780. Now, that's later. So whether they made conscious decisions at that time about who's going to do that and, and what choice they're going to have, I don't know. But uh, they certainly thought that it was very important to have visualization here. It's sometimes said that the Enlightenment is anti-visual, uh, that it relies only on the written word or increasingly on the written word. But I don't think that's true. I think that the Enlightenment very often delights in a certain kind of visualization. Um, you think of medical texts in which you have these very fine drawings and and so the encyclopedia tries also to do that as a contribution. And, of course, every modern encyclopedia has illustrations. It's one of the things about uh, certain kinds of online encyclopedias that you sometimes miss. Let's get into the enduring legacy. How does the world look differently because of this work? Um, what, what is its major impact that you can narrate for us? The impact of the encyclopedia, I think, is really to help an intellectual revolution of the Enlightenment in the 19th century that cannot really be separated from the Industrial Revolution. It can't be separated from the idea of increasing democratization. It can't be separated from the ideal of a society in which class and inheritance mean less and knowledge means more. Uh, it can't be separated from the idea in which uh, a society no longer believes that might makes right. It believes instead that it's what you know and how you use it. And it's hard to say that, you know, one book has a terribly large impact in the sense that uh, there's so many books and there's so many great impacts. But this is a project, we call it a book, it's really a project, that um, 
has stood the test of time, that has been widely imitated, and that actually did spread knowledge. To illustrate this point, Professor Engel shared a story from his own life. When I was in college, uh, one of my uh, classmates, every morning, would get up early, which is rather unusual in college, but he would get up really early, and he would go to Lamont Library, and he would sit and read the encyclopedia for about an hour on his own. Um, you know, it was remarkable how much he knew about certain things. And I, I always found that terribly impressive. And we say, oh, you just go and read the encyclopedia. But, well, we do. We do look at Wikipedia. We do turn to encyclopedias or we turn to other reference works. And so the idea of just uh, dismissing it, I think, is quite foolish. But the encyclopedia wasn't all about knowledge. It was also about change and progress. There's this constant sense in the encyclopedia that there is progress, that progress is something we can achieve. In the past three centuries, a lot has changed, and not all of it for the better. All we have to do in the 20th century is think of the Holocaust and the possibility of thermonuclear war and uh, climate disruption that might end in irreversible climate change. So there are lots of reasons to question progress. But the idea that, of the encyclopedia is that it, opening these things up to reason itself is a form of progress, even if that results in critique. They're not a, afraid of a critique of progress. They view that as part of progress itself. So they have a very fluid definition of knowledge, or I guess a, a kind of evolutionary. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, they would be horrified if uh, the encyclopedia were set in stone and we were reading the encyclopedia of the 18th century today as if it were the be-all and end-all. I think that would horrify them, uh, absolutely. Uh, so they envision a, a, an intellectual world that's changing. They know it's changing. They want to change it. It almost seems like it's a response to rising complexity. It is indeed. There's no doubt about that. And it's also a response to um, what is just beginning to be considered as a phenomenon of modern history and complexity, which is acceleration. It, the word acceleration appears later in the 18th century, at least in English, as far as I can tell, for the first time as a way of describing what's happening, in part fueled by the incipient industrial revolution, in part fueled by more and more things being published and printed, in part fueled by more and more travel and a greater ease of certain kinds of travel. Well, you put all those things together and, I mean, just look at our lives my life's a lot more accelerated now than it was 40 years ago. Why? Well, we got email, we have text, we have instant communication. Um, I can you get act. invited to podcasts. Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, but I, I can, I can sit with my laptop anywhere I have a connection, and I can get uh, millions of volumes to read on that laptop almost instantaneously. Now, talk about the acceleration. So the encyclopedia is both a contribution to that and a response to it. It's a way to handle it. It's a way to um, corral it, as it were, order it. Uh, but it's, it's also contributing to it, in a sense. Um, and you can say that's a contradiction, but, you know, you, you have to work up to the level of what already exists. And when you see that level, you may, in fact, be enhancing that level 
But that's the way human society has generally developed. Uh, you know, would we want to turn back the clock and say we shouldn't be able to access books online? I certainly wouldn't. Uh, so I think they are, are very conscious of this. They're very conscious that what they are doing is not the end of something, but in a way the kind of a, a beginning of it. Many people today engage with the Encyclopedia Project through sites like Wikipedia and the China-based Baidu Baika. That's a modern version of this dream. And uh, we, as a society, need some kinds of touchstones for our knowledge, whether it's libraries or whether it's things online. Uh, and they're, in some respects, harder and harder to get, in part because um, the we have a competition of information which is put out and is consciously not true. There's a competition for power in all of this. And people who want to get power, whether it's in terms of money or politics, very often think nothing of bending the truth some. I mean, it was an ideal of the encyclopedia to present the truth, which was, uh, I think, a pretty good ideal. <laughs> um, mistakes are always made when you try to present the truth. But if you don't try to present it, then you get worse mistakes. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.